Halloween hangover coming up on Love Thy Neighbor. You're listening to the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, your home for discussion and analysis of the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Ryan Rothman. Welcome back to another episode of Love Thy Neighbor, the only podcast that is exclusively dedicated to the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Reinhold Niebuhr. I'm Cliff Bailey, and I'm joined by co-hosts Zach Narrison and Aaron Duncan. Zach, welcome back. Good to be back. How are the beaches of Tahiti? Yeah, (laughs) I wish it was the beaches of Tahiti. The the beaches that I were on were... Beaches of sorrow. Yeah. (laughs) Speeches of reading endless pastoral texts for your ordination. Anyway, good to have you back, Zach. I got to be honest, uh, last month was so packed with content. We were about to get started on reading again for today, getting back into Beyond Tragedy, uh, where we left off in chapter eight. But I thought, look, we just interviewed five people in four weeks. That whole month felt like a whirlwind. I don't think we as hosts ever took a moment to reflect on everything we just did. So I had the idea. Why don't we take an episode and really reflect on what the crap just happened? Election day is less than a week away. And we got loads and loads of wisdom over the past four weeks. So I say let's go around and see what we three took from the past four weeks and kind of catch ourselves and our listeners up on everything that we that we've done and really kind of focus on uh, some important things so this is going to be our halloween hangover episode where we where we catch our breath reflect a little bit and maybe talk about what kind of mindset we should all be in for the upcoming midterms elections the midterm elections So first things first, we've all prepared our top five highlights from the interviews, and we'll go through each of them in order. But also, I'd like to hear you guys uh, regrets. If you have any regrets about any of the interviews, anything you wish that you would have asked, anything you would have uh, pressed down on more had we done that, anything that, you know, and maybe I just want to ask that because I know I have those regrets. Um, But uh, I don't know. Yeah. What kind of regrets? Does anybody, for instance, regret the wolf howl? No, I wish there were more. Because the wolf howl is gone. I've retired yeah. the wolf howl until next year. Maybe we should add like a turkey gobbling now. Okay. Turkey gobbling. I like that. Here it is right here. Okay. That was good. That's fitting. Thanks, turkey. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so... All right, let's get into it. First up, um, the interview with Josh Malden. What did what did you take uh, from from this one, Zach? Why don't you go first? Well, yeah, thanks for just tossing me out here. Um, <laughs> um, no, I think that the the biggest takeaway, I think the most Niburian, like meaningful Niburian takeaway was, I think the best critique I've ever heard of Niebuhr was given by Bart in. Or, or we found it as you're reading uh, Joshua Molden, or at least I found it as I was reading Joshua Molden's um, entry in the Oxford Dictionary of Reinhold Niebuhr. And it is that, I mean, I'll just summarize it basically. And it's that um, 
political outcry is not always the right, like it's not always the best possible path. And I think sometimes that Niebuhr really gets hard, criticizes people for not, you know, speaking with a prophetic voice, but he doesn't quite recognize what all they're actually doing, you know, because uh, Bart argues back to Niebuhr, Niebuhr criticizes him for not uh, speaking on the, the famine in Czechoslovakia, I believe. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Bart waits two years to respond and says, listen, like, if I had, if I had cried out in the wilderness and done a bunch of political outcry, I would never have been able to accomplish the things that I, that were important. And he was able to reach out and save two people from the famine that were close friends of his, but he wouldn't have been able to do that if he had been so outspoken against the authorities. And so sometimes Niebuhr makes that kind of the only path. You have to have political outcry. So what, you're, you're taking Bart's side here, Zach? No, I, I actually still agree with Niebuhr that maybe Bart should have said something. But at the same time, you know, Niebuhr wasn't in the thick of it. You know, he wasn't there. He wasn't, he did like, maybe pol- political outcry is not always the best possible option. You know what I mean? I mean, and, and I think that's something that... Sometimes political outcry or prophetic outcry uh, can get in the way of actually doing. Well, and... It's almost like sometimes Niebuhr makes it the the pinnacle of you know human action. You know, I mean, I'm not saying he says that because obviously he's not that naive, but sometimes it feels like he could get exalted to such a lofty place that it creates an inability to attempt other uh, other ways of approaching things. Does that make sense? Because yeah, that makes sense. Like Bart said, like if it had kept him, if, if the authorities had been had known, you know, his real thoughts on the matter, then. He wouldn't have been able to accomplish what he was seeking to accomplish, which is to actually help some people. Um, yeah. Immediately created, put him out as red flagged him. Um, I guess okay, so in that one instance, yeah, that makes sense. I think but, he overestimates. Yeah. He overestimates. But I do think you you have a good point in that we can't just treat like what we do with the pen, and this goes for pastoral ministry as well. We can't just pretend that what we preach is the most important thing that we do. You know, and like the words that we speak are clearly not the end all of our pastoral ministry in the churches. And if we made everything rest on that, we wouldn't get a whole lot done uh, that are much more important, maybe. Um, So if we use that as kind of an analogy, then, yeah, sometimes, uh, you know, glorifying the pen kind of creates a barrier or detracts um, from other things that you could be doing on the ground. Thoughts, Aaron? Um, no, no thoughts on that. I mean, I can move to mine. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. What would you take from um, Josh? The one thing I, contextually speaking, that helped me like understand this division between Bart and Eber is Josh's insistence near the conclusion that Niebuhr and Bart have different projects mm-hmm. that they're working on. Gosh, dang it, you took mine. Oh, did I read? Yeah, okay. go ahead. Sorry. Sometimes I think that you're reading my notes and just stealing what I wrote. No, no, okay. sorry. Um, uh, no, but they had different projects they're working on. So I, I, I think the implication of that is, number one, it can make sense of why it's so hard to communicate between Niburians and Bartians. Um, maybe for, you know, maybe you on Twitter or whatever. Um, but I also think the implication is that it reveals a half truths, uh, a half truth on both sides, that they're both pointing at something that's worth critical engagements and to take seriously. 
Um, I don't think you can just throw Bart out completely and say he's completely irrelevant. Just like I, I don't think you can take Niebuhr and do the same thing. Um, so that's probably what I've learned. What I would have liked to have to talked about or maybe asked Josh a bit uh, of his um, is, is in the chapter. He makes a note that Schleiermacher and Bart quite similar, although, you know, in, di- distinct in their respective theological outtakes. They make a distinction between religion and morality, something that your know, neighbor doesn't do. Um, but for most cr- contemporary critiques of religion, like in Deleuze, uh, morality is inextricably, inextricably linked to religion. As in Nietzsche, morality is a sign of something transcend- transcendent. It's Kant. Yeah. So I, I kind of wonder what Bart and Schleiermacher would have to say to that and maybe what Josh would have mm-hmm. um, commented That's on. That's the rub, it seems like. Like, I something that I did take up from not maybe Josh explicitly, but just reading him, I noticed something about Bart that his his politics are detached from his theology. Yeah, you know, like it, they don't bubble up from his theology. Yeah, it's kind of detached. So there well, is kind of this barrier for Bart where his theology doesn't really venture into the ethical realm mm-hmm. much. Josh tried to go on; he kind of went on a tangent, like trying to explain how you can take ethics from Bart, but he, even he admitted it's quite complicated to get into ethics from Bart. Well, on page one twenty. Uh, Josh quotes Niebuhr's critique of Bart on this point where he says that um, Bart's failure is to adhere to his own announced standards because, you know, he says he, he, Bart um, champions like this, the radical otherness of Christian doctrine and um, and morality that is is something that is removed from modern categories and secular terms. Um, Yet he kind of in a circular roundabout way finds th- moral ideas like democracy and ethics in the bible himself that's what that's what josh's uh, point about bard is which is a bit of it is circular that mm-hmm. he can f- justify his politics because he finds those in the bible mm-hmm. you know it's just kind of the exact same logic it's what a fundamentalist would do. Exactly. Yeah exactly what a fundamental <laughs> it's what the Christian that's exactly Niebuhr's critique of Bart yeah. is that he's kind of a neo-fundamentalist yeah yeah and i've been so transformed you know by the great niebuhr that i uh i i quite i don't quite understand how like if your theology has nothing to say about your ethics like in a clear way it's just useless to me like i literally yeah. don't like i don't even want to read it or know like, it can be really cute yeah. and wonderful to read and abstract and all this stuff but <laughs> if you can't clearly state that like something is ethically wrong like, I mean, I know there's some ambiguity, obviously, in every, you know, you can't just say theology has a direct one for one correlation. But if you can't take from the idea that we're sinful, and then make some political ramifications for that reality, then your, your doctrine of sin is so stupid. Like, I don't uh, know. You, you are really channeling, I think, that uh, quote from Niebuhr on one of Bart or uh, Bonhoeffer's papers, where he says, where's, where's yeah. the ethics here? You have no ethics yeah. whatsoever in your theology. Where does it hit the ground, Dietrich? Yeah. But then well, again, you know, it is ethics solely theology? Is is Niebuhr just Kant, um, you know, 2.0, but more Christian? And what's wrong with that? Well, he has no substantive view on God. 
or of uh you know he's not like an early church father to say he's he doesn't have a holistic approach and i think this is where the rub comes from because like i'm fine with that niebuhr serves a purpose for me for the the ethical realm if i want the substantive essence of theology i'll go elsewhere i'll go to a new testament scholar or something like that you know to find out what you know what is god doing in jesus incarnate or something like that i'm kind of tired of hearing this this garbage that niebuhr doesn't have us like a like a established theology like yeah i I listened to what uh molten said in the podcast i just listened again this morning and he said that you know, it was a little shocking to me to, to, to hear it again, but he said that he didn't know how you could pre how you could t- like talk about the proclamation of the gospel with Niebuhr's stuff. And I'm just like, I don't even understand what you're talking. Like to me, that doesn't make, like, it doesn't make sense to me because I'm like, it, I, being I able to talk know, about theology through ethics is almost like an analogy. It's almost like being able to, it's like it, using it as an illustration, right. To talk about sin and then to actually talk about how it looks in real life. And not just some abstract, you know, sin, woo, but to say, hey, look, there's corrupt systems where we oppress people. You know what I mean? Like, oh, that's sin. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, anyways, I just, I get kind of fired up about that. Yeah. I mean, maybe, but this is something that I would have liked to um, wait it on to bring up when we're talking about Matt Anderson, but I think it has some relevance to hear. Um, you know, Matt says that Niebuhr really believes in God, justice and love and those qualities like Cliff and I talked about before we started the podcast. But, you know, Cornell West writes a book or like a, di- a dialogue between him and Niebuhr. And he keeps on asking Niebuhr if he actually believes in God, mm-hmm. you know. So if if he has such an established theology, I don't know if that would be such a. Well, that's an anecdotal question. like that's one person who happens to be a very heavy handed pragmatist in Cornell West who loves early moral man and moral society Niebuhr who do, like doesn't have as much of an antenna for the later Augustinian Niebuhr. Uh, but so he's critiquing the Niebuhr ironically that he loves, yeah. you know, which, which is kind of uh, circular too. But uh, like, I like having Gary Dorian on um, really brought this out. Niebuhr prays to the God of the Bible every night, you know, uh, I, I keep thinking about this really, really good paper by uh, Michael Novak, um, where he kind of fends off the Hauerwasian critique that Niebuhr is, you know, just a pragmatist in Christian clothes by saying that all Niebuhr does is hammers down on certain absolutes of idolatry, sin, and grace. And these things are impossible without a God. Like the Niebuhr's very work is contingent upon there being an actual God. So while he doesn't spend a whole lot of time in the clouds and, you know, figuring out how the Trinity works out or, you know, introducing maybe Greek ideas to create categories about, you know, uh, what, what is incarnation and, and these types of things. Uh, Niebuhr's very Hebraic in how God represents kind of this very transcendent other that shapes our uh, morality here and now. And there's an incarnational essence to that as well. When we, when we live out these, uh, these maxims, uh, we become more uh, aligned with God, with Yahweh. 
um, and less destructive in the world, I guess. Well, sure. The only thing I would say is that Niebuhr, Niebuhr's project is to do something, to provide a social like critique or an mm -hmm. ethics. To do that, you have to have some sort of groundwork to launch from. And says who? So is says he, the, is he the just traditional gonna, Western way of no, thinking? No, is he just going to go out? So are you saying he has this view of God and these things? And you just quoted a guy who says that he assumes God. He assumes God. But what is he assuming about God? He is he has to have some assumptions. Well, I think that right? uh, getting into what Matt Anderson said, I think that he makes the assumptions of the prophets yeah. plus Jesus. Like you add in Jesus as the incarnational element. Um, but I think that he's not going to spend a whole lot of time on theology proper when he's doing ethics. Then, and he will yeah. return continually back to saying, that's why I'm an ethicist. Sure. But I'm not, I'm not going to lie. Like the fact that Niebuhr is continually saying I'm not a theologian kind of confuses Niebuhr a little bit because when he's saying I'm not a theologian, he's actually talking about a certain type of theologian. Like his brother. Like his brother, like Bart like uh, fundamentalists, like head in the clouds, working out yeah. uh, these, the niceties of, you know, these complex doctrines. He's not as interested in that. He's more interested in how these things look on the ground. And, and I understand the critique of William James, but, but dang it, I think William James is a good starting place for understanding the way that religion actually matters uh, in society. And Niebuhr is right to come in to religion, I think, and maybe I'm, I'm biased in this way, but I love how Niebuhr comes in and doesn't obsess over, you know, the higher theology, um, but more about, okay, you believe this, fine. What are the effects of these beliefs? Um, I don't know, uh, because I, I saw someone on Twitter recently saying, oh, I was relieved to hear that Niebuhr acknowledges he's not a theologian. And for this person, I know that it gave them permission to set Niebuhr aside and to not feel like that they don't have to deal with Niebuhr then, you know, because he's not a theologian, I therefore don't need to take him seriously in matters yeah, yeah. of theology. When I don't think that that's right, I think that, that Niebuhr should challenge us theologically, um, especially in the ways that it forms who we are. You know, our theology well, forms the way that we act. The only thing I'm saying, and I, I would agree with you on that point, all I'm saying is that Niebuhr's critiques or his ethics will have a basis in something, whether explicit or non-explicit. I mm. am of the opinion at this present moment that it is more than likely the latter, that he's not always explicit with his I think that's foundation. Fair. Um, he, he's ambiguous about it so as not so he can have this dialectical um, view of theology, of God, of history and international history. A part of me thinks uh, one man can only do so much because I, I do think yeah. that like like I will tell you and I've we've had this conversation before that Niebuhr can't check all the boxes for me. I need something else. And ironically, this is something I used to say about Bart. Uh, back at, when I was at Union and I was head over heels for Bart and I, I kept on running into this barrier where he can't speak to my ethics. And that's what I'm interested in. I was a Bartian dude interested in ethics. And 
I kind of felt this, I kind of had this experience where I couldn't quite bridge one into the other practically. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I kept on saying to myself, gosh, I love Bart, but I can't just love Bart yeah. alone. There needs to be something else. Well, now I'm also saying that about Niebuhr. I, I need something more than just Niebuhr. What? Yeah, I, I think maybe what I'm also trying to say is something potentially maybe like the Stokes would conceive of their philosophy of the tripartite understanding of the egg, that you have nature, ethics, and metaphysics. Mm. Or is that right? It sounds right. Yeah, something like that. But you, you cannot have one without the other. You have to have them all intermingling because... And I, I think you could extrapolate from that important lessons, although I, I don't know if that would be the exact way I would conceive of theology or philosophy today. Um, but there are some important lessons that if you try to just use one abstractly, you're going to make assumptions about met your metaphysical assumptions about God. You're going to make assumptions about nature. I think what Niebuhr deals with is more nature and ethics yes. than he does with metaphysics. It's almost like and there's a paradigm problem with that, that the Bart-Niebuhr uh, rivalry expresses. It's almost like, and like I'm thinking right now, like the, the paradigms of, Einstein, I'm sorry, you guys are going to roll your eyes, but Einsteinian physics and quantum physics for a long time. These things don't get along like if but the thing is, if you start from the universe and gravity and matter and energy, you start from big things you and come down, you have Einsteinian physics. And but the further down you go, you start running into problems. If you start from the molecule, the subatomic level and you have quantum physics, that makes a whole lot more sense of that little stuff. But as you move into, you know, uh, the proper, the larger properties uh, of, of what's governing the universe, you run into problems from there. So it's almost like you have to have these coexistent paradigms in order to get the whole picture. I'm sorry, it's a weird analogy, but like, I, I almost think that when you're starting with God, you need someone like Bart. When you're starting with ethics, you need someone like Niebuhr. So how would you do that? Ah. Do you, and, and do you do that? Well, I think something, one of my regrets I put down for Josh Malden is that I wish that I would have asked him because I had it in my notes, but I think we might have run out of time. But I was going to ask him whether Bonhoeffer himself was a good model for somebody who embodies both Niebuhr and, and Bart, because he came into union straight Bartian uh, to the point that Niebuhr was criticizing him but he found his demise by heeding a very grounded theology that there is sin in the world that must be dealt with on the world's terms almost by incarnating kind of uh the wisdom of scripture which is much more Niburian. um so yeah like i don't know i wish i would have asked him that well you know this is kind of off on a different track but i have one major regret you know, from this, this interview is that I failed to recognize before the interview that Joshua Molden was involved in, oh my the, gosh. in the, the NASA, uh, the NASA study where they hired uh, 24 theologians to uh, try to figure out what would happen when uh, extraterrestrial life was discovered. It was a very controversial study. Um, 
Yeah, his nice. his research or his think tank, his research center was uh, what contracted by NASA yeah. to and do as that. Direct, as the director it's of the center. It's almost like, you know, a kid going up to his parents and like him asking his mom, like, hey, mom, what would you do if I accidentally wrecked the car? And she's like, well, I'd be really <laughs> right. mad. And he's like, okay, well, I didn't do that. <laughs> like, <laughs> don't look outside. You know, it kind of seems like that's what NASA well, doing. I was going to say, I'm, I'm hesitant to bring this up right here, but we did talk to him <laughs> when we weren't recording. We were, we, we were talking to him about that. I think Zach is the one that noticed this connection. I made the connection when I, when I, I knew this, this Center for Theological Inquiry. I had looked into their thing and I found this article on this thing from NASA <laughs> And uh, I mean, it was like headline news, like it was like all over major news agencies when it, when it finally got reported on. So and I had read we, we like I totally like asked him straight up, are there aliens? And he got a little like maybe I'm reading into it. Maybe no, I was definitely his reading his into it on podcast, but he didn't. We'll just say he didn't really answer it. I thought I kind of sense he got a little cagey about it, but whatever. Uh, you know, he has his reasons. I actually can't believe we didn't have a um, a spooky a spooky Niebuhr question about Nava aliens. I know. You well, really... had I known that, I would have. Oh, we didn't know that for like. I didn't know that until we recorded. No, we, yeah. we could have done that. Like we could have done it afterwards. Uh, Maybe we'll have it. to we'll have to do it later. Yeah, we'll have to bring him up. To talk, I would love to talk extraterrestrial life with. Yeah, I don't know if he'd you be willing and, to do that or not. You know, I think you and um, you, the old podcast you did with uh, Volmer, Doctor Volmer, you you guys discussed that a bit, didn't you? Yeah, we did on our two episodes. We got into <laughs> aliens. It was awesome, though. Yeah, check that out. It's called Theology Adjacent. It is on Podbean. And that's the only place that carries it because we only made two episodes, <laughs> but it was, it was fun. Shout out to Tom Vollmer. But uh, I, I wanted to bring up a similar thing I got out of the Josh Malden episode uh, that I really enjoyed um, that I, I think I discovered in Josh kind of at least a new hope that the two can coexist, that Niebuhr and Bart can coexist. He made a good point in his paper that they addressed two distinct problems with liberalism at the time, and the two are not necessarily doomed to be arch nemeses forever, despite their kind of real-time uh, quarrels. Uh, they can actually make, somebody can make something work with them. Um, especially with Bart having a kind of detached politic and ethic, I think there's kind of like how I was describing before with Einstein and quantum physics, like there is a way to make them coexist because obviously physics is existing now with both of these paradigms. So until we can get like a unified theory of everything of Bart and Niebuhr, um, I think that we can live with them both kind of coexisting and us respecting the Bartian perspective. I like the way that Jeremy puts it. I think that Jeremy calls it the Bartian corrective. So as Niburians, we can kind of take in, you know, and go on this track, this journey with Niebuhr, but always being aware of the Bartian corrective, which is simply, we can't let our Christ start looking like the world, you know, which I, I think that that is what Bart definitely offers a guy like Niebuhr, that we can't translate Christianity so much into society that it starts looking just like society. Hmm. So, uh, so I think oh, I wrote yeah. this down. I, I wrote down this, my thoughts on this. I think that a good rule of thumb is to never quite be the Bart 
that Niebuhr thought Bart was and never quite be the Niebuhr that Bart thought Niebuhr was. That's a nice little rule of thumb. If we can think about it that way. So, but, but if you have to choose between the two, just read Niebuhr. Just, yeah, just always default to Niebuhr because, hey, yeah. this is the Love Thy Niebuhr podcast. We don't mess around. We just get down. <laughs> All right, next up, Matt Anderson. Uh, the topic here was kind of, was Niebuhr a realist? And of course, he was making the argument that Niebuhr was not a realist. Um, and he, when you press him on, well, what about, does the Christian part of Christian realist modify realist enough? His reply is that it's an oxymoron or is a contradiction the, of terms. The real question is, Cliff, did you change your Twitter bio? I did change my Twitter bio. Wow. He because him. I like his categorization a lot of he, uh, Hebraic prophetic categorization. I like, I much more like calling Niebuhr that than realist, just if for no other reason, just because when I'm talking to people who are into foreign policy and you bring up that Niebuhr's a Christian realist, even, they'll be like, oh, he's a realist. And you have that dreaded conversation where you have to explain how he's different from a realist, you know, and and maybe that conversation is needed. I don't know um, to fully explain his his perspective. But uh, but I did take it down because I what I got from Matt is that it is kind of a term that can be confusing. You know, yeah, that, that, I mean, that was my big takeaway is that I I I, I want to hear more. I want to flush out more before I decide that what Nero is exactly. Um, I, I would agree with Matt, though, is that I've always felt like an anxiety about coining, uh, calling Niebuhr a realist, and I think that he does a really he does a really good job of kind of basically just pointing out that realism is just a lot more, a lot less supernatural and a lot less and a lot more cynical, I guess you could say, than Niebuhr was. Absolutely, as much of a cynic as he is, he was a very hopeful person, also. Yeah, yeah, that's right. What did you take from it? Aaron? Well, I. I the two things I took from are probably exactly what you guys have put down um, that I, you know, Matt elevates a certain sensibility in Eber, which is his uh, love for the prophets mm -hmm. and prophetic witness in politics. And that's above the Greek philosopher. Mm -hmm. um, so there's that, but uh, um, I think Matt's sort of recategorization pinpoints what uh, Zach has just, point out the hope he has uh, Niebuhr has in the redemption of humanity which is mm -hmm. very contrary to the optimism of our liberal states mm -hmm. and the cynicism of our realists so yeah. and just adding in that that sense of hope really does yeah. change the formulation for a realist and I would say also plugging in the sin the sinfulness of man as opposed to just this flat, self-interested brute, which is how you know realism kind of treats the human being. Sin just adds a certain dimension that allows us to anticipate more about the capacity of humankind and the creativity of humankind. Well, I think that I think that realism, I mean, maybe this is, you know, I'm getting out of my wheelhouse here, but the way that I want to describe it is it feels like realism is a lot more deterministic than Niebuhr right. was. Like, yeah, Niebuhr had a, obviously a string of that, but at the same time, he was very, he very much believed in human agency. You know what I mean? He very much believed in that people, you know, 
I don't think he would have written otherwise. You know, I don't think he was right. just like screaming in the dark. I think he was screaming with purpose, you know? And it's that human agency that is at the center that sin implies that actually creates the mystery that is history. But then that you can't, yeah. you can't predict it. Like it is its own beast. Yeah. There, there, there is on the one side though, that you could, if you just take that alone, people could run with it and they could think, or they can come to think that, um, they can do anything. Mm-hmm. If this, if I, if all I have is my agency, and we're just little atomistic little individuals running around, little, you know, loving little agents doing our little things, we can accomplish great things. Mm-hmm. But Neighbor also has the thing add, as the note that there's things outside of our control. Yeah, so, that's true. So he's a determinist and also a believes in free will. He thinks there's some things that we cannot control, but he thinks that there's things that are within our control that we can do as well. Something that I love about Neighbor, we haven't gotten to quite yet and beyond tragedy, is he puts side by side the parable of Jesus, the king on his throne, separating the goats from the sheep, right? Uh, and then the, uh, cra- the parable of the crazy farmer that gives everybody the same uh, wage, even the people who came in late. And like he he creates a dialectic of determinism and free will from this, uh, that we bring our own destruction on ourselves, but also graces for everybody, no matter you know how late to the party you come. I don't know, like he what I got from that and we'll get to that in later episodes when we finally get back to Beyond Tragedy is that Niebuhr tries to contain both some essence of free will and some essence of providence um that we can't fully understand uh where the two meet and uh and contradict one another and stuff like that but we have Mm -hmm. to take it all kind of into our consideration um in in order for the ethic to work i guess one thing to to kind of think about as we're moving into those is it a paradox or is it a dialectic that he's what do you think it is i don't know I, i think it's a dialectic that has ethical implications because we're we are always hopeful in the providence of God, but that doesn't relieve us of the tension that we must make decisions and act as free will creatures. Uh, but I wanted to make a note about the conversation with Matt Anderson about the, this term, this category of Hebraic prophetic tradition that he, that he places Niebuhr within. Um, something that, uh, John Weatherly told me about, and this goes back into the conversation with Matt, but, uh, Weatherly told me after our show, we were discussing an article in the Atlantic that was basically on the character of Merrick Garland. And in the piece, the author talked about how Garland embodied a certain trait that, that Niebuhr championed, but just in the context of that discussion, Weatherly made the comment to me, he said, and this is a quote straight from him. He said, Um, The way people in politics draw pastoral guidance from Reinhold Niebuhr is remarkable. I don't think anybody else fills that role for government leaders. So let me say that one more time. The the way people in politics, and we can assume we're talking about uh, Merrick Garland in this this conversation, um, and we're talking about politicians, and we're talking about, you know, uh, we could also include maybe journalists in there. Uh, but the way that Niebuhr is used, the way people in politics draw pastoral guidance from Niebuhr is remarkable. I don't think anybody else fills that role for government leaders. And it got me thinking, I think he's right. I, I don't know. I sat there and thought about his comment for a long time. I don't know of a single theologian, anybody else, uh, 
despite however many public theologians exist out there in the world, and there have been, I don't know of any other theologian who serves as kind of a well of Christian wisdom for political leaders. I tried thinking of others, but I couldn't. But I don't know. But this, I think, buttresses Matt's point about Niebuhr falling within this Hebraic prophetic tradition. It's almost like Niebuhr is a prophet directed at the powerful, a kind of missionary to the elites, um, to those stewarding and governing. Um, And when when he sinks in for some of these guys, he really, really sinks in. And these other realists like Morgenthau or or Kennan, they certainly don't have what Niebuhr has. And I think a lot of that has to do with this interdimensional religious vocation of Niebuhr that he could draw from religious conviction to apply timeless truths to those in the political realm. I think we could simplify what you just said, too, to say that he had something meaningful and of substance that they could actually draw upon. You know what I mean? Like they can actually say, look here, look, my, this is how theology should impact. Like, like we believe in a simple system. We should reject oppressive uh, yeah. behaviors instead of like, I mean, I, I just can't think of a theologian that does that more effectively. I mean, I, there's some I that can't have, think I, of a single one, but they also, the big pitfall they always fall into is they end up on one side or the other. You know what I mean? And so you have, you have this weird thing where then people say, well, don't, don't get involved in politics at all because you want to be able to minister to both sides. But really, Niebuhr has the defeat is quite spectacular in that he's able to, like you're saying, address the, both the right and the left, but not. Yeah, I mean, they all could kind of draw him from a pastoral standpoint. And it's pastoral. I mean, that's the crazy thing. It is, uh, yeah. it is Niebuhr speaking about the wisdom of a leader um, that have, people can take. There from. have been others. Like if you watch the PBS documentary that um Dr. Sabello was a co-creator, Barack Obama, Mm -hmm. even some Bush um, people. John McCain. John McCain. Love uh, neighbor. uh, What's his name? I've just forgotten his name. Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter. Yeah, Jimmy Carter. Um, There's so many people. Martin Luther King. David Brooks. Mm -hmm. Because there's something of substance. You can actually draw upon it. It's not like all of a sudden, like, you know, a lot of, political or pastoral theologians pastors to i mean sorry pastors to diplomats and yeah. uh, government officials they're just one-sided like i mean you mm-hmm. can't you know, I, mean, I was totally right though like it's wow. all about substance because there's you know going back to the the king's the king's travel the king's court you know uh billy graham could easily and uncritically be put on the same level, but people aren't drawing from him. They, they, it's more, he more serves as like an icon and a piece. You know, I took this so seriously when he sent this because I was like, I'm going to find somebody who is just as or close to Niebuhr and their pastoral effects for political people in political power. And so I looked up the source of all sources, Wikipedia, and I looked up political theologians and under America, it's, it's probably still like this. If you guys want to look it up, there are three theologians listed. Okay. Reinhold Niebuhr, Richard Niebuhr. <laughs> and then it tries to bring it up to current modern day. And it says Stanley Hauerwas is a great political theologian. And my thinking is Stanley, who is channeling Stanley Hauerwas to leave? Stanley Hauerwas is 
you know, calling Stanley Harawas a great political theologian is like calling an arsonist a great firefighter. <laughs> anyway, uh, Jeremy Sabella. Wait, he forgot one. Oh, crap. The great. Amos, Amos Young. I, I'll tell you why I forgot it. I loved it. He was very gracious with his time. I, I racked my brain trying to think of something good that I took from that. I took a lot from our conversation about Niebuhr's King's Chapel and King's Court. Um, I got to be honest, like, so here's my regrets about it, is it ultimately came down to one thing. I wish we had more time with him. And I wish we could, like, more time would allowed us, would have allowed us to warm him up more um, and maybe gone off script a little bit. But uh, I, I'll tell you this much in the future for Love Thy Neighbor. And again, I am so thankful that Amos was able to come on. But I do think that we need to maybe police this a bit more that maybe we should have a time limit of an hour. I just, I, I don't know how much we can get out of a, com a conversation that's a half hour long with each of us trying to get in our questions. Yeah, it was definitely tough. It was definitely tough. It was tough. hard. But well, I what'd, you, what'd you get, Zach? Well, I just would say one real positive I got from it is that, um, you know, he, 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 you know, jokingly kind of in jest called us neighbor nerds a couple of times. Oh, I'll take that. Yeah. But, but the funny thing is, here's, here's a guy that wrote that also at the same time uh, drew drew enough from Niebuhr that he wrote the foreword for Nature and Destiny of Man, the pinnacle of Niebuhr's work. So he is probably a Niebuhr nerd also, as such as he doesn't want to be terminized that way. But I thought it was really telling that you know, here's a guy that is the, the dean of missions and theology at Fuller Seminary. And he's still saying, hey, there's something unique about Niebuhr. He makes me think. He makes me, here's a guy that, you know, deeply, deeply educated. Yeah, knows yeah. a ton about political theology, written vast numbers of books. And he's still saying, you know, when I read Niebuhr, I'm confronted. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm, I, I still find myself provoked to thought from Niebuhr. It's not like, oh yeah, I know about Niebuhr and I can move on. It's like, no, no, I, I kind of keep coming back to him. You know I mean? Like he keeps kind of waking me up, you know? Um, and that was cool. You know, it's cool to- I wish that we had more time. I could have asked him a lot more questions. I almost wish that we would have not centered it on that article by Niebuhr and more about, like brought on somebody else to maybe do that with us and more about Nature and Destiny of Man. What did he, and maybe we'll, we'll reach out and see if he could put in an hour with us to put in an hour toward Nature and Destiny of Man when we're going through that. Um, because I'm sure that he has a lot to say about that. He wrote the the, the preface or the foreword for- for the most recent print of that. Um, but yeah, how about you, Aaron? Did you take anything? Um, I would agree ultimately with this sort of regret <laughs> that I wish we had more time. But I think, you know, he had some good insights on missiology and mm -hmm. reaching people of different racial and minority communities. <laughs> he, he brought some really good points to some questions I had about, you know, um, Niebuhr's sort of long and um, hard um, academic career with race, mm. you know, so I think he has some good points on that. Yeah, good. All right, now, Jeremy, what did you take from this, Zach? I mean, it's a great, it was a great interview, um, but I have regret, I mean, two regrets. I, one, I, was, I wasn't there. <laughs> True. Stuff, 
Uh, number two is I would have liked to hear more of, you know, because Jeremy's a Niebuhr expert. I would have loved to hear more about his take on. I know. How, how Niebuhr would have responded to the book, you know? And, and I, I kind of left was left at the end wondering that I need to do another episode on this just so I can hear a synthesis, you know, because he, I, I mean, he's obviously using paradigms that would have been, but, you know, in, in his Twitter post, he said that, you know, this is something that I think that Niebuhr would have basically poured out a ton of, he would have really gone after it. He would have poured out a ton mm -hmm. of things like that against Christian nationalism. Um, and I, I kind of I wanted to hear, you know, I wanted to hear what, what, what what is it, Jeremy? What 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 would he have said? You know, I have some yeah. ideas, obviously, but I know. think our last interview with Jeremy was really good. Like we brought out a lot of that stuff with him and that. But I, if I could just go off of that and just share one of my regrets, um, that it's it's the same thing. But I, I want to express this for our audience that you have to understand when you're interviewing someone. First, you want to talk. You want them to do the talking, so you're mindful of them. They are the focus. Um, because all, and also we are focused on the book. So we already have kind of split priorities and we have to, we have to cover the book, but we want to hear from Jeremy and then adding in <laughs> that we need to bring in Niebuhr into it as much as yeah. possible. That's just kind of one too many priorities. So, something is going to get lost. And so unfortunately I think bringing Niebuhr into conversation with Christian nationalism 100%. got lost a little bit just because you're trying to balance the guest, the reading, and Niebuhr, um, that can be hard to do. 100%. I think I had the exact same regrets. Um, I, we focused a lot about what the book is not. And I think that was really important. Yeah, it was. Um, because, I mean, Jeremy's right. If you were to give like a sentence by sentence critique of the book, you would just, you would lose your mind. Yeah. Because yeah. like you'd be going in, too much. it's a labyrinth of not, good deductive arguments for their points um but i would have loved i mean i think it'd been great to bring in two thing two like two of neighbor's writings irony of american history mm -hmm. and the king's chapel and the king's court yes because that book relies heavily on how do you interpret the first the establishment clause in the first amendment um and there there is in a presumptive uh, the, the the argument the entire book rests on a presumptive innocence mm -hmm. um so those two things i think would have been great to like hit home on but maybe next time but holy crap i mean the this interview with jeremy yeah. was incredible and let me just it's say what i got most out of it and i think i mentioned this on the episode like later on um it's this idea that jeremy brought up that that reading that christian nationalist book as a postmodern text yeah, um, Aaron and I had a discussion afterwards. I wanted to bring this point up about whether this was a postmodern text because Jeremy got us thinking about this. And I think Aaron and Weatherly both had kind of similar reservations, although they understood and they see that that rem remark is valid. Um, but let me let me try to explain just I, like how I think Jeremy is using the term postmodern. Um, don't think of these guys who wrote the Christian nationalism book as deliberately writing a postmodern text. Um, it's not that at all. They, these guys are not Baudrillard, all right? They're, they aren't setting out to write a postmodern text. I think it's subconscious or like many things in the book, unconscious, um, completely unconscious. <clears throat> but, I, but I think of those authors as being unwitting conveyors of postmodernity in the same way that 
uh, Lyotard and Baudrillard use it, like they are carriers of the postmodern condition. These authors are carriers of the postmodern condition. So uh, they are so, put, I'll put it to you this way. These authors who wrote this book are so untrusting of media and universal meaning in all of its forms that they necessarily become unwitting creators of their own fanciful realities. Um, it's not an act of choice. Hey, I'm a postmodernist. I don't believe in truth. It's more, here's a truth that is divinely inspired that allows us to bend, sway, or reject all other truths or facts we're confronted with. Um, and the end product is a functional postmodernism. It's their own reality cooked up, not meaning to, to do, not knowingly creating a postmodern fanciful world. Well, but what it sounds like is, I mean, it sounds like, you know, that, that I just brought up this morning before we got on, on air here. And uh, it was the idea of uh, ch child, childness and maturity. And, or, or mm. yeah, that's the thing. It was the one of the sermons in Beyond Tragedy, and I couldn't help but when I was listening to this, just keep thinking of like, they just want things to be simple, you know, and they're yeah. not. Life is not simple, but the, but that that is very telling though that they want that simplicity, and how that's a very indicative sign of major. This is God's word. Distrust the world, yeah. and when you distrust the world, you're distrusting all of our kind of shared universal ways of knowing. Um, and uh, an experience, and you are ushering in your own fanciful view of what you think God is saying through the text. And ironically, I thought he, the, one of the greatest things was he brought up Schaefer. I believe it was him. I was the next one. But he yes. brought up, maybe they brought, both brought up Schaefer. They both brought him up. He brought up. The fact that, you know, Schaefer was, you know, obviously in line with this to some degree, but his thoughts were so much more nuanced and so much more complicated than just like and this. grounded, yeah. Yeah, they, they had like a they were considered like arguable and whereas you guys are talking about this and it was more like what is your argument you know you're like what are you what are you really getting at here well i would just add that postmodern writers i mean if you even consider christian postmodern writers like from um james k smith to other radical orthodox writers that there comes out from a, a narrative theology and so they're describing not the truth mm -hmm. or the validity of truths behind it, but th how these truths arise out of narratives we construct and tell ourselves. Whereas the way the arguments function in this book are self-evident truths. Mm -hmm. So it's circular in logic, um, it, but it functions almost as a sort of proto-fascism. Mm -hmm. Because it is the truth, the one and only thing, yeah. the only narrative we can live our lives by. So what, what yeah. is the, um, oh man, that guy, uh, Snyder from Yale, who studies the dictators um, and fascists and that type of thing. I, Timothy Snyder, I think is his name. He calls this mag uh, magical thinking, mm. you know, uh, a kind of magical thinking that we, we've seen it in Trumpism since the beginning. So, you know, with Kellyanne Conway, I think she called it alternative truths or yeah. alternative facts or something like that. But magical thinking is kind of believing in a leader so much that he becomes the gravity around which all truth is dictated yeah. and is, you know, is pulled in. And, you know, all truth is therefore dictated by this 
this central gravitational force, you know, um, and it gets you to believe absurdities. And in the words, I think Voltaire, anybody who can, who can get you to believe absurdities can get you to commit atrocities. Yeah. You know, 100%. it's so weird too. Cause you know, I, people in my family, whenever they're confronted with questions about like their political views who, who hold like similar political views, this they're like, well, wh- what do you think? That's just your opinion. Right. And so, it, you know, in, in a weird way, and I'm not knocking my boy Plato here <laughs> or this or the skeptics, <laughs> but for Plato, tr- knowledge only comes out by rationality that you can't obtain knowledge through the senses right. because it's corruptible. Um, hyper-rationalism. Hyper-rationalism. Yeah. And you can't, well, you know, for the skeptics, you can't know anything. Yeah. <laughs> well, how can you know that? But like... <laughs> Yeah. Um, Gosh, but I just wonder, I don't, you know, I don't, and this is where I don't know if there's a postmodern condition because a postmodern sort of condition is an awareness of the narratives that we tell ourselves. The, narr- the foundation of narratives are stories we tell ourselves, whereas they're not aware of that at all. Again, it's a self-evident thing that they believe. Well, let me tell you what they're aware of, that anybody suffering under the postmodern condition, I suffered under the postmodern condition. Yeah. We all three suffer under the postmodern condition, and it's very simple. It's just that we aren't. It's just that we are aware of its problems. I've risen above. Sure. No, you have not. And <laughs> here it is. It's that we are so inundated. Think about it this way: in the information age, at the height of the information age, we have never been more divided on what is actually factual. It's because it's because yeah. of the high information, because we have so much information, you are able to create alternative narratives it's kind of like looking at an inkblot test um i always use the example when i used to teach uh post-modernity to students um at the postmodern condition to students that uh in baseball there's so many stats that are available to everybody in baseball that you can make a single player look really good by just selecting certain stats or make them look really bad by selecting a different set of stats we have so many, so much, so many stats, so much information, so much data that we can construct now seemingly feasible narratives from the actual data itself, uh, from outliers, from taking outliers and constructing our own kind of. That's that's how conspiracy conspiracy culture works. Is it takes these little outlier bits pieces, yeah. little bits and pieces of like 9-11, that's why uh, the 9-11 truth movement was so big. They were able to take, because it was the most filmed tragedy in history. They had so much real that they could pull from to, con- to concoct these witnesses, to create this single narrative from these different witnesses that seemed to imply that there were, you know, explosions set in uh, the World Trade Center to take it down. Um, they could pull that because of so much available media to them. Well, another great one is, uh, you know, Ken Ham, good old Kenny, you know, I mean, I yeah. think that, you know, 100%. The, the he can doctor. construct his own quote unquote scientific narrative yeah. from all the data that's out there. Yeah. And it's really hard to like discern. I mean, for, and that's not that hard to discern, but it's hard for someone that doesn't have any sort of biological background to discern. Oh, well, this is convincing, you know, there's, there's data here, but then, yeah, everybody has a different opinion about, there's a lot of data, 
And it's like very few people actually have like done the time to actually familiarize themselves. And so, but they start making opinions long before they actually familiarize themselves with the data. But, but the point is we can all feel the postmodern condition, just having this conversation it probably gives us a little bit of anxiety about what we can trust and what we can't and what is ultimately epistemologically different between us and somebody who would write a book or a pamphlet like this Christian nationalism book. You you know what? One of the things you can trust. What's that? Reinhold neighbor. (laughs) He will never fail you. (laughs) Right. Because they'll Uh, tell you how to trust yourself. (laughs) All right, now off to uh, Dr. Weatherly. Loved this conversation. This was fantastic. But we should admit, he's he admits that he is not a Niebuhr scholar, but he loves Niebuhr. Uh, but he's a New Testament scholar. So, and I made the note while we were talking because Aaron kept on talking about the Bible. I'm like, oh my gosh, we bring on a Bible scholar, and suddenly I'm love thy Niebuhr. We're all talking about the Bible. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, it, it did bring a different complexion of the discussion. Um, we didn't get into Niebuhr a ton, so there's some regrets, but, uh, but I, but I loved, uh, loved the conversation. The one thing that really pumped the brakes for me when discussing the book on Christian nationalism with with, uh, Dr. Weatherly, that he points out that in the book, they have no theology of the cross. Yeah. And I wonder why that that's the case. Um, I don't want to be like gracious about it and say they probably just forgot it because they're not the Andrews Isker and Torba are not idiots. They're not, they're not mentally deficient mm-hmm. people. Um, I, I, I don't believe the argument is structured well. And, and in fact, I don't know if there's much of an argument or more perhaps a complaint, you know? Um, so, I mean, they either left it out on purpose because it doesn't fit their mm-hmm. what their politic um or really they really don't think it has any relevance to their complaint weatherly brought this up beforehand on an email and he said this is what i took they never talked about the cross and i responded well you have to understand the cross is a stumbling block to their argument <laughs> and oh. and foolishness to their audience Yikes. Yeah. Yikes. <laughs> All right, all right. Um, so, what, but what, it what, is, but it no, is. It's a, it, it, you put the cross in there and their, their argument falls to pieces. You know what? One of the things, though, that even though Weatherly is not necessarily a Niebuhr scholar, he highlights one of the pinnacle, he, I think he had one of the best things to hi, like highlight, and that is that he's like, they want an easy conscience. Yes. You know I, mean? I mean, that's just the epitome. That's, that's so Niebuhr. So good, I about jumped out of my true, skin when he said true, that. True, yeah. man, is they want an easy conscience, and well, buckle up and grow up you know what i mean like yeah. it, that's not how this works the, the cross does not give you an easy conscience yeah what, what, what do you guys think like just imagine imagine if we're doing a show in the future and then the andrews were on with us torba and esker and they were sitting there we were having a conversation with them they probably come how on. would we how would you both of you i'm going to leave myself out of this because it's a tough question how would you explain to them how they want that easy conscience why why is it that they want that or what what so we are explaining to them why they want an easy maybe one or what what's building up that sort of unconscious under you know self-reflection well i'll tell you i'll tell you where my uh entry point would be why cut netflix 
why, why, like, I would frame it around kind of the Puritan um, uh, streak in them. Yeah. That they want to get rid of this evil world in their life. Sure, yeah. Uh, and this would and that that question of why do you cut Netflix? Why must you homeschool? Why must you cut cable? Why are you distinguishing yourself from this world? Hopefully that would draw us into a more nuanced discussion about sin and where evil actually lies. That's within the heart of each individual. Yeah. And that would bring us hopefully into a very Niburian conversation about human nature. How about you, Zach? Yeah. No, I'd probably be a lot less gentle. I'd probably start with I I'd grab them and shake them. I'd probably start with a discussion on Freud and uh, oh. what, what are the latent desires that are leading them to the simplistic, uh, no, I'm kidding. You would get into their like upbringing? Yeah, yeah. Like what is it that they, they need the simple and the safe? You know, why, why can't we look at things more complexly? I didn't read the books, so I, I can't really speak to it beyond my sarcasm, but yeah. Um, and, and, and I listen well, to I, the, the I can tell you in the margins of one of the pages I wrote, what did AT&T ever do to me? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. I was just like, I don't what understand what's going on here. Big tech, man. Yeah. What a boogeyman. I mean, ultimately, I think Weatherly said it best, or, or Jeremy, I can't remember, but have you read history? Have you read right. any history? Like, literally, what you're doing is, like, right out of the textbooks of, like, we're going to come to America, and we're going to start a new world. And it's like, okay, good I mean, luck. I think the argument they're making, we talked about this before, is, is the technology isn't inherently evil they they want to build they want to replicate everything that has been made but just put christian in front of it so like they want to be like they want to have christian in front of realist almost you know mm-hmm. they just want that qualifier yeah everything like, they want christian exactly. netflix they, they don't want netflix and chill they want netflix and church you know? like <laughs> i mean <laughs> you know, so oh my god so my, sorry <laughs> my wife my wife showed me a meme yesterday and it was like we're good christians we only ce- we don't celebrate halloween we celebrate jesus ween <laughs> exactly. so stupid. i'll tell you what i got from weatherly and this was actually, I think, Niburian. Um, he said, don't overestimate. This is at the very beginning when I was asking him, how do we approach uh, friends and family members who have bought into Christian nationalism? And he said, this is, this is a direct quote. He says, don't, don't overestimate what you can do in the short term and don't underestimate what you can do in the long term. I think that was uh, very true. Like, uh, we shouldn't be panicked and think, oh, we've lost our brother or sister and they're, you know, uh, falling into this cult now and we have to convince them today in this conversation over coffee. Um, but it's really a character thing that, that you're really trying to just continually be Christ and uh, to them and really trying to continue to love them and, and to lovingly show them uh the the harm that uh that this christian nationalist movement can do i feel a sense of conviction when it comes to that because i don't think i'm that gracious or loving when it comes to this because i think i'm just so angry how enslaved these people are Mm -hmm. and how how far they'll go to justify their delusions yeah it starts off with you know voting for a guy then going to his rallies, mm-hmm. then listening to some self-proclaimed prophets who've prophesied that he would return and then hasn't. 
mm-hmm. and then try to self. It just it's a whole spiraling cycle that it drives you mad. You know. So yeah. how about we just buy Twitter and fix it? We can do that. Oh right. Yeah, I was thinking about this the other day. Elon Musk basically bought Twitter to own the libs, <laughs> didn't he? Yeah, basically. Just even get him on here, you know. No, I don't want that guy. Unless he wants to make a contribution to Love Thy Neighbor of, of forty-four we'll, billion dollars, then we'll talk about it. <laughs> if he wants to buy it, you know that he has like a latent interest in Christianity, right? <laughs> if he if he finds Love Thy Neighbor as a threat, did, to, did you did you watch his uh, interview on the Babylon Bee? What? No. no, he wasn't on there, was he? He went on. He went on and he interviewed. And I would say that he had a deeper understanding of theology than they did. It was quite. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Be, oh my gosh! He's actually, a very well-read person, so it would be very. I don't want anything to do with that man. Well, I'm just. I'm, I'm not. I'm not gonna come on here, dumb. Let around. him. Let him buy our podcast and make us start love the neighbor uh, too. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't matter, man. The, the possibilities are endless. But let's let's let's. Yeah, let's this. move on. Okay, so. Uh, <laughs> Any last, any anything else that you guys got from uh, Weatherly or Sabella? I think we went through Sabella quite quickly. I I think that you were going to bring up the cross with Sabella too. Maybe not. Uh, Weatherly and Sabella both had similar points. Weatherly brought up that they don't have a theology of the cross. Uh, oh, well, Sabella kind of uh, processed this through Luther's theology of glory versus theology of the cross. Um, both very similar kind of ways of understanding um, what was going on, but yeah. I thought that was great. Um, that was fantastic. I think that the, if I haven't stated the one positive thing about Dr. Spella is that, you know, again, the, the temperament in which he approached the reading of the book is, is a model. I think so. For, for how you read these books, because I came in writing almost like line by line notes of like how dumb some of the arguments were and how like I don't know how this fits within mm-hmm. the structure of the thesis statement of at the beginning of the chapter of each chapter. But he's like, it's not supposed to make sense. Yeah. And it was almost freeing when he says that. Well, know? it felt a lot like having Niebuhr on the show where it's like he did something similar that Niebuhr would do is we are so focused on the the wedge issues type of thing. But then someone like Niebuhr would come in and be like, but what's really going on here? What's mm-hmm. the heart? What's the what's going on with kind of their ambition? Um, you know, I think I think Jeremy kind of had that same approach of, you know, we we should treat this more as uh, an, just anger. Like there's just real anger here. You know, uh, this is an emotional appeal. This yeah. isn't rational. You know, we should maybe look at it through that lens instead. And Weatherly did a similar thing, but yeah. yeah. All right. So I got one last question for us. Uh, we got the election less than a week away. Um, it's actually a week away from when we are uh, recording this, but uh, by the time this drops, it'll be less than a week away. As we're going into the booth and we're thinking about these uh, midterm elections, how should we strive to be a Niburian voter what can what what element of Niebuhr could we bring in with us into that booth well I want to take I want to take the first one because I want to take the easiest one and I think that one of the things you got to take away from these interviews and I think we we almost touched on it and I resisted like stating it out loud because I wanted to save it for this part and that is that I think and I think you emphasize it better than I ever could have Cliff by saying that you go on to Wikipedia and the only political theologian you find in the United States history are Niebuhr and his brother and then 
kind of one of his rivals or not rivals, but one of his biggest critics. Yeah. Um, and, and I think another great example is Amos Young um, and his being kind of haunted by Niebuhr, you know, for Halloween here, you know, Halloween's yesterday. Ooh. We could say that I think that Niebuhr should haunt you. You know, if you're a Christian in America, I, I would, I would say read Niebuhr. I think he has a unique voice. It's, I don't think you're going to find this voice in other writers. You know I mean? There are Niebuhrian yeah. writers, but I don't think you're going to find there's something unique about what he did in his writing that, that haunts people. I mean, Amos Young said he comes back to Niebuhr again and again. Uh, Joshua Molden, he's he coming back to Niebuhr again and again. I mean, you could, go, you could go through these interviews and people are haunted by him in a good way, in the sense that like, so my recommendation is, you know, be haunted by Niebuhr. You know what I mean? Let, let his thoughts. Fantastic. But I, because I tell you what, you don't have to be a Niebuhr scholar. You don't have to read everything by Niebuhr to have that Niebuhr get somehow lodged into your conscience uh and like there's just something there that's always going to temper you i it didn't take me long in my ma when i was really getting acquainted with niebuhr where i grew something of a niebuhrian conscience for things like or whatever i was reading i would always have to come back to what would niebuhr say yeah well and and i think yeah i mean i think it's just it's telling to me you know i think amos young is just i just keep coming back to him but it's telling me that here's a guy who's written a ton on political theology, but he keeps coming back to Niebuhr in a way that he he's getting something out of it. He's helping us, you know, uh, process through this stuff. Yeah, he, he's confronting us, you know, and he doesn't necessarily write a ton of book. He doesn't write any books or articles about Niebuhr, but it's personal. You know, he, yeah. he's still reading Niebuhr, but it's personal. It's not even, it's not even affecting his, his academic work, but it's like, I kind of need to go back to this. You know what I mean? And I think that that, that should, that should be a, I mean, I would tell anybody that's thinking about voting, read, read a book by Niebuhr, man, get in there and get confronted, get uh, it's personal. It's really hard to unsee what, what, or, or to find that anywhere else. Yeah. In my opinion. That's great. How about you? What, what Niebuhr, what element of Niebuhr do you bring into the voting booth? Well, I think I pose a question. Would Niebuhr vote for the lesser of two evils? Would he begin with that posture? Does that posture already set you off at a cynical point? And for someone who has deep hope in a redeemer God, in absolute concepts such as love and justice, he would walk that tightrope, you know, if he had to, believing until his dying breath that whatever happened he was going to say true to that that mm. have that courage that calling and so i guess if i had any advice or you know any i don't know points would be we should view every candidate within that overarching concept of justice mm-hmm. and even when they will all eventually fail that we still have to remain hopeful and work towards something better than our and greater than mm-hmm. ourselves. That's an excellent way to put it. I, I, yeah, I don't think he would say like lesser of two evils because that presupposes that every candidate is evil. Yeah. When every candidate actually has a capacity for goodness. Yeah. Um, I even had issue with this when I, we were asking Weatherly, when I was asking Weatherly and Aaron 
about what would what, what would Niebuhr say the Antichrist was, because I don't know if Niebuhr thinks that any possible human is purely evil. Yeah. Like there's always something redeemable there. So he wouldn't phrase it as lesser of two evils, but he would say what which candidate embodies the maybe the greater virtues that could um, bring about the greatest amount of justice in, in this particular decision. So for me, here we go. I think to be, here we go, to be a Niburian voter, we need to have a certain sense of proportion. I'm talking about the day after, the day after the vote, knowing going into the voting booth that the next day we need to be prepared for with a certain sense of proportion. If things go your way, that doesn't mean you're going to solve anything. It doesn't mean you're going to solve the world's problems. If things don't go your way, the next day is extremely important for not panicking, not throwing in the towel. Remember, we take the world as it is and not as we would have it. To Niebuhr, you know, I mentioned this earlier, rationality belongs to the cool observer. When we panic, we aren't good for anybody. Uh, we become dangerous, actually, when we panic and when we think that everything's going to hell in a handbasket. Democracy isn't going to fall in one election. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be realistic about the damage that could occur from one election. We should take that very seriously, but it's not the end of the world. So what I'm saying is if the GOP takes the house, just repeat the serenity prayer over and over again until 2024. And even after that. Yeah. What's that, Zach? Well, I said you don't want Dr. Oz and... Uh, Herschel, Herschel Walker. Walker. <laughs> we don't need a walker. We need a runner. I don't. Sorry, I was for those people who have no idea I'm referring to. Uh, just, just Google that. <laughs> but I, but I tell you what, guys, I can't tell you the amount of time. Uh, the Serenity Prayer is a kind of daily liturgy for me, um, in hard times. So it's do an episode on the Serenity Prayer. Oh my gosh! We why should, haven't we already? We should come with our best photos of where we found the serenity prayer <laughs> nice uh chucker bathroom stop probably so chucker bath yeah <laughs> the first time i ever saw the serenity prayer it was on one of those like knitted um it wasn't a pillow but it was on like some kind of knitted fabric and framed and a, a fellow who's my best man in my wedding it was in his bathroom i think it was a wedding gift from like their parent or something like that and i was like oh that is really profound who wrote that? Yeah. So anyway, uh, any any last words for this episode? Nope. Zach, you got anything? I would just say to our listeners, we want to hear from you. Um, and we want to know what you thought of this last month and whether or not it helped you think about uh, voting and think about how you want to see the government of your own or, or your inner engagement with the, the government in your own society, Excellent. whether you're in America or elsewhere. That's right. Yeah, we actually have a Russian listener every now and again, I see. Really? <laughs> yeah. We have, and dude, you guys are not going to believe me. We entered the top 100 podcasts in the UAE. United Arab Emirates? Yes. What? But I think it was just kind of in the English language. So there's at least one or a few people in the UAE who listen to this. So if you're out there, we salute you. Thanks for listening. That's amazing. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so that about does it for this week's episode of Love Thy Neighbor. We want to thank you, the listener, for staying with us. We hope you enjoyed 
the October interviews. We'll be doing that again, hopefully next year. Like and subscribe, write us a good review, and be sure to follow us on Twitter at Love Thy Neighbor for news and updates. Take care, everybody, and stay safe out there. <laughs>